If you would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We'll be looking at the first eight verses of Luke 18 this morning. I wanted to remind our men of our men's prayer breakfast coming up on Saturday, Kingdom Men. Uh, We will be discussing family worship. And that will apply to granddads, to dads, and future dads. And so if you're covered there, uh, we would love to have you. And uh, we have a good time, we eat well, and it's good fellowship for us. And I also want to remind you of our time change. Um, in two weeks, first week of November, uh, we will move the clocks back, but we're actually moving worship up. And Sunday school up. Sunday school will be 9.30. Worship will be 10.45. And that will be in two weeks. So I'll continue to remind you because that's got to get etched in our brain. We'll put it on our material as well. Well, if you would look with me in verse 1 of Luke 18. Jesus has been talking about his second coming. Preparing his disciples for that day. Preparing us for that day. And he says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, he will find faith. Will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Father, we need this text as a means of grace because we are so prone to self-sufficiency. So we pray today that the, the whole point in Luke being inspired to write this could take effect with Fisherville Church. Incite us to prayer today. I pray you would use my fishes and loaves, Lord, and that you would multiply that and feed your people. Nurture our strength, our And Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that are pliable to your grace and mercy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The the Vindy Globe Endurance Race. It's a yacht race. But it's not just any yacht race. It's a yacht race around the world. It takes three months to accomplish. And much of the race takes place through gale force winds. And even Antarctic conditions. It's run every four years. That's about all uh, the helmsman can take. Um, if you even touch land during those three months, you're disqualified from the race. But the biggest challenge doesn't come from the conditions and the weather. The, bill, the biggest challenge comes from within the boat itself. Because it is a solo race. The helmsman has no crew. He races alone. One Englishman uh, who is a world-class yachtsman, Alex Thompson, says the reason he puts himself and his family, because they sacrifice a great deal, 
his wife and his young son. Uh, the reason he puts them through this torture, if you will, is, is because over 3,000 people have climbed Mount Everest. More than 600 people have gone to outer space. But less than 100 people have ever completed the Vindy Globe race. Uh, the route, you leave France and you go south in the Atlantic Ocean and you take a left in Africa and then you go through the Southern Ocean near Antarctica, one of the most dangerous places on the earth. And then you go south of South America and go left back up to France. It is a very arduous race. Um, he said that last year... When this race took place, two hours into the race, he was in a fetal position asking himself, why am I doing this to my family? Why am I doing this to myself again? Uh, in fact, the helmsmen sleep on average about 20 minutes every three to four hours. Imagine doing that for three months. After all, if you're... Uh, you know, taking the boat near Antarctica, you've got 50-foot freezing waves crashing into your boat, and you can't afford uh, to be asleep at the wheel. <clears throat> You're the, you are the cruiseman, you are the mechanic, you are the, the chef, you're the everything for this particular race. It's a very difficult race, and yet he persists. In a document, a documentary... Uh, on this man, Alex Thompson, they asked a sports psychologist, why would a person put himself through this kind of torture? And he said, I think he's trying to deal with childhood demons. And I would disagree. I believe the reason Alex Thompson persists and perseveres every four years in this very Difficult race is because of worship. That's why he persists in this race. All of us are committed to something. There is something that is ultimate in our life. It's what drives us. Um, it's where we spend our time. It's where we spend our resources and our efforts and our energies. It's our ultimate passion. And whatever that is, is your ultimate treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And where your heart is, there your hands will be. Your God animates your life. Okay? That's a very important principle from the New Testament. It's not who you profess to be your God that animates your life. Your real God animates your life. And one of the best barometers that reveals the extent to which the true and living God animates our lives is our prayer life. Our natural desire to pray comes from the fact that we were created as the image of God. God created us the image as the image bearer, and we function and flourish best when we're in communion with the living God. That's the purpose for which we were created. But our inability to pray comes from the fall. At the fall, the image of God was distorted in man. And now, 
we are unable to pray as we were created to pray. And so the renewed ability to pray with fervency, heartfelt prayer, is a mark of the new birth. It's a fruit of our regeneration, our new birth. But here's the rub. Although prayer is a spirit-wrought fruit of being in Christ, being a new creation in Christ, in our fallen condition, okay? In our fallen condition, we need means of grace. We need reminders to persist in prayer. Because of the prevalent tendency we have to self-sufficiency. And God has given us in the gospel of Luke one of those real means of grace. Luke spends a great deal of time discussing prayer. We see Jesus' prayer modeled and we see prayer discussed a great deal. In fact, uh, just a few months ago, we looked in Luke 11 where Jesus is praying and the disciples ask him, teach us how to pray. And he gives them the Lord's Prayer that we all know. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. And then he gives them a parable. And in that parable, you have a man who receives an unexpected guest. And he has no food to feed him. And hospitality of the day required that. And so he went to his neighbor's house at midnight. And he began to knock on the door of the neighbor. And he asked the neighbor who gets out of bed for three loaves of bread. And this neighbor, because of the man's persistence, gives him the three loaves of bread. And we learn from that parable that God honors persistent, specific prayers. And Jesus goes on and says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open." Well, today, he teaches us more about this persistent prayer in this parable. And the parable begins in verse 1. <clears throat> and this parable is found only in Luke. It's not found in Matthew or Mark or the Gospel of John. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, who is the them? The them is the disciples. He began speaking to the disciples in 17 verse 22. Remember, these chapter divisions were added later. Sometimes these chapter divisions gets in the way of good Bible study. And remember, at that time, he's talking to them about his return. And we saw in that uh, passage last week that Jesus, in his first appearing... That is, when he came to earth the first time, was born in a manger, and lived those 33 years on earth, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. And we saw that the kingdom of God is, is the establishment of God's saving reign, covenantal presence and authority over the hearts of men. That kingdom has been established through the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, God poured out His wrath on the Son. And in the resurrection, God said, Amen to the it is finished of the Son. The kingdom, the saving kingdom was established. And one day when Christ returns, and He speaks of that return in verse 8 of our parable, He's going to consummate that kingdom. That will be the day of judgment. 
And so now believers live between the times. They live between the, the time of his first coming and the time of his second coming. We live in the time of the inaugurated kingdom. And the scripture teaches us that during this time, it will be difficult. In fact, uh, I believe the scripture teaches that times will become increasingly difficult during that period. And so Jesus is giving us a, a parable to teach us to pray so that we will not lose heart during those times. And I think a very natural question to ask that the disciples would have asked is how can we make sure that we will not fall into the same sin as Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife? We looked at this last week and he said, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife, her heart was set on the things of this world. Her heart was not set in the promised land. It was set on the things of this world. And he warned them to remember Lot's wife. So how can we persist and close with Christ and not fall into the temptation of loving Sodom? Jesus gives us the answer with this parable. In fact, he is contrasting. Notice he says he gives them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He's contrasting praying with losing heart. He seems to be saying, if, you, if your life is not marked by heartfelt prayer, you will lose heart. You will faint in the day of adversity. He's speaking to Fisherville Church, even as Luke is originally writing this to Theophilus. This is a word to us. How do you keep from losing heart between the times of his first appearing and his second appearing? Jesus said, you must pray. This text is obviously saying that prayer is the key. Now, there's most certainly a connection between this verse in chapter 18, verse 1, with the previous verse in verse 37 where he says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will be. Now, where is the corpse? That's where death is. This world, this present age, is like a corpse. It's under a death sentence. And so, Jesus is saying that in these atmospheric conditions in which you live... If you fail to pray, you're going to breathe in pollution that will obviously affect you I think it means that praying becomes a part of your lifestyle as much as breathing does. If you're a healthy person, then you're going to breathe and you're not even going to think about breathing. It just comes natural because of your need for oxygen. When you're healthy spiritually, your life will be marked by prayer. 
Not because you're unhealthy, but because you're healthy. You pray as spontaneously as you breathe. Charles Spurgeon said that he rarely prayed more than five minutes, but he rarely went more than five minutes without prayer. I believe that's what he's referring to here. And so to always pray means to live in what I call a state of doxological desperation. Now, what do I mean by doxological desperation? Well, it's doxological because you have new desires. He's he's speaking to disciples here. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to those who've repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for the payment of their sins. And so as a believer, you are now in Christ. You have the spirit of God. And he is speaking to those who have this new desire. And that's why we are doxological. We're in a state of worship. We have new desires. But we're also in a state of desperation because we're still broken. We are not full. We're not comprehensively uh, conformed to Christ yet. We're entirely dependent on God's provision, His power, and His peace. Doxological desperation. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And to do that... He introduces to us two characters. The first character we see in verse 2. Notice he says, In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. It's not a very good description, is it? The judge was anti-God and he was anti-man. He did whatever was right in his own eyes. He was a judge without justice. That's a bad deal. In fact, this parable is sometimes called the parable of the unjust judge. Indeed, he lacked the two qualities which are necessary in order to be a just judge. The fear of God and respect for humankind. So Jesus is painting a very uh, horrid picture, if you will, in this parable. You have this man who does not love God and he does not respect humankind. Well, in verse 3, he introduces the second character. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversaries. Luke mentions widows more times than all the other Gospels combined. He's very concerned about justice for widows. And to be sure, the law of God made provision for widows. The law made uh, provision for the justice and the care of widows. But in all actuality, widows were some of the neediest people in that day. They were marginalized people. And this widow was obviously no exception. Notice, she was desperate. She she knew that she was desperate, and that's why she persisted. It says that she kept coming to him day after day. And this is why sometimes this parable is called the parable of the persistent widow. The only thing she had going for her was her persistence. 
And she used it. She used it to her advantage. She was not afraid to use the one thing she had going for her. She kept coming to him. Why? Because she was desperate. That's the only reason she kept coming to this judge. The lesson here is very clear. A needy heart is a praying heart. Now, the fact is all of us are needy. But oftentimes our need is masked by our health, by our self-righteousness, and by our wealth. Like a, a, a person who has pain, mask their pain with painkillers. The fact is, all of us are needy. And if we saw as clearly as this widow saw, we would be as desperate and as persisting as she was. Doxological desperation is the heartbeat of persistent prayer. On the contrary, if your life isn't marked, characterized by doxological desperation, then you are suddenly confident that your health, your talents, your resources, your time, and a little good luck thrown in is all you need to make it in life. Jesus is teaching us that by way of contrast. But that is a delusion. Throughout the gospel of Luke. Who have been the ones who have come to Jesus sincerely and desperately? Those who are aware of their need. In fact we saw just a couple of weeks ago. Ten lepers who were aware of their need, and they came to Jesus in desperation. Prayer is essentially bringing all your helplessness to Jesus. And so if your life is not marked by prayer, you're not helpless enough. And that's where the delusion is, because in all actuality, you are. And that's why Jesus is giving us this parable. Thomas Merton, I think, sums it up well. He says, prayer is an expression of who we are. We are a living incompleteness. We are a gap, an emptiness that calls for fulfillment. The implication is, yes, we need self-discipline to pray. But you don't need self-discipline as much as you just need to be poor of spirit. When we are prayerless, we are not poor of spirit. And this is what the widow displayed. She recognized she was helpless. She reckless, uh, recognized her state. And hence her persistence. And it was her persistence that wears the judge down. And by the way, this may be a little countercultural, but it is Bible. Anything that draws you, or rather drives you to the face of God, is a grace. 
even if it's painful, even if it's difficult, if it drives you to the face of God, it's a grace. Because the safest place in the world is before the face of God. Well, notice in verses 4 and 5. For a while he refused. He's unjust. He doesn't love God. And he certainly doesn't respect or care anything about this widow. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself. Though I neither fear God nor respect man. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice. So that she will not beat me down. By her continual coming. At first he ignored her. He'd hoped that she would just go away. But this woman was relentless. She will not take no for an answer. And it's not because she's hard-headed. It's not because she's stubborn. It's because she knows this man is her only hope. That's why she's persisting. That's why she's relenting. Unrelenting. And finally, he relents. Not because it's the right thing to do. But in order to get rid of her. In order to get her off his back. He's not compassionate. He's pragmatic. Okay? That's the issue. It benefits him to appease her. And that's the only reason he gives in to this widow. And maybe you're wondering, maybe you're asking, what does that teach us about prayer? What does that teach us about God? You've got this unjust, unloving judge who only gives in to this marginalized woman because she's unrelenting. It's because she won't be quiet. He gives in to her just to get her off his back. What does that teach us about God? That brings us to the principle of the parable. All right? Verses 6 to 8. Notice in verses 6 to 7. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. What did he say? I don't fear God. I don't respect man. And this woman keeps bothering me. I'm going to give in to her so that she will not beat me down. Verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? The parable makes one simple, but if you hear it, life transforming point. God isn't like the unjust judge to us. And we aren't like this marginalized widow to God. That's the point. It's a parable of contrast. God isn't like this unjust, unloving judge. He is just. He is loving. He is gracious. He is benevolent. It's a lesser to greater argument. If you have this mean and evil judge 
who answers the request of this marginalized woman, how much more will God, who is righteous and just and loving? And he says, we aren't like the marginalized widow to God. Notice how he describes us. He says, will not God give justice to his elect? Again, a lesser to greater argument. Marginalized widow, elect. Now that term, elect, it's a term that has caused consternation with many people through the ages. And the fact is, there have been many who have even said to me, I don't believe in election. The problem with that is you are betraying the fact that you don't believe in the Bible. Because the Bible clearly uses the language. In fact, the noun elect is used 22 times in the New Testament alone. Never mind the Old Testament. The verb to elect is found 22 times in the New Testament as well. And so that term is used either as a noun or a verb 44 times in the New Testament. In fact, um, Matthew uses it, Mark uses it, Luke uses it, as we see here. John uses it. The Apostle Paul uses it. Peter uses it. And James uses it. And so if we avoid this term, we have to avoid a large part of the New Testament. We can't do that. We cannot avoid the New Testament. We cannot avoid this term. Now, the question is, what does it mean? And... Not to get in the way of the parable, I can just tell you there are two broad views of election. And I would, I would venture to say both views are represented at Fisherville. Because both, both views in view are held by godly evangelical Christians. Okay? The, the one view is that it's conditional election. That is, God looks through the tunnel of time and He elects those He knows will repent of their sins, and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's called conditional election. The other view is that God uh, recognizes that if he looks through the tunnel of time, he will not find anyone who will repent of their sins and trust in Christ because of uh, the fact that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They, they love their sin. And so that view is an unconditional election. Okay, now we have to consider uh, in a real broad sense that both sides have to concede God's sovereignty at some point in the equation. For instance, if you believe that God knows what will happen in the future, that's called God's foreknowledge. Okay, and if you believe that God alone is the one who gives life in the womb then you have to believe that when God is giving life in the womb of the mother, he knows whether that baby 
is going to one day repent of his sins or her sins and trust in Christ, or whether this baby refuses to trust in Christ, and he is actively giving life to that baby, all right? And so there has to be some sovereignty in this equation, all right? That's the conditional view. The unconditional view sees that God is sovereign in eternal past, eternity past. The conditional view sees that God is sovereign at the point of conception. Both views, though, have some things in common. For instance, both views recognize that not everyone will be saved. There is no universal salvation, even though that God is willing that not any should perish and come to saving faith in Jesus, not everyone will be saved in the end. Both views also recognize that in order for a person to be saved, he or she must repent of his sins, her sins, and trust in Christ, or this person will not be saved. And both views have to affirm that there is something that God esteems more than universal salvation. For the conditional view, God esteems free will more than the fact that everyone will be saved. Think about it. If he was giving life at the point of conception, he knows whether that person is going to trust him or not in the future. Why doesn't he just give life to those he knows will trust him? Okay? And so there's something he esteems more than universal salvation at the point of conception for in the conditional view. In the unconditional view, there's something God esteems more, and that is his glory in free grace. And so it's either free will or free grace that God esteems more than universal salvation. The fact is we have to deal with the doctrine. We can't avoid it. To be biblical Christians, we have to deal with the doctrine. You can deal with the doctrine without having an agenda. Now, Fisherville's official position in Article 6 says this. Election is God's eternal choice of calling persons unto everlasting life. That's been Fisherville's official position since 1880 when they adopted their confession of faith. And I believe that is the position that is most biblical. I believe that God's election is unconditional. But it in no way mitigates responsibility, human responsibility. There is a mysterious equation there. There's a mysterious tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Which means we must evangelize. We must do missions. We must pray. We must repent of our sins. We must confess Jesus as Lord. And so if either one is minimized, I believe we're out of balance. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. And those two truths are compatible. But the whole point in using this term elect is to make the lesser to greater argument. In other words, if an unjust, unloving Judge will grant the request of this marginalized, nameless widow. How much more will a just 
and loving God grant the request of those who are his. That's the whole point of this text. It's meant to encourage us by way of contrast. Jesus is teaching us realities about prayer. And we learn two things about God from this contrast. He is just. What does that mean? It means he came to fix the broken things. He's going to make the wrong things right. That's what it means that he's just. He's going to make the wrong things right. And he is loving. Now notice verse 8 tells us he promises to do that. To do just that. Verse 8. I tell you. He will give justice to them speedily. Who's referring to there? The elect who cry out to him. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, this verse is very important because it reminds us God is not a genie in a bottle. This is not a ticket to name it and claim it. Prayer is not the union of my wisdom and God's supply. Prayer is the union of God's wisdom and my need. Notice the prayer here is for justice. The widow here is crying out for justice, which means the widow is crying out that God make the wrong things right. In other words, this is a prayer that links with chapter 11, the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is where God comes To make the wrong things right. And the first part of this verse. Verse 8. Will he give justice to them speedily? I mean that would be very encouraging today. In a world uh, of injustice. In fact some of our brothers and sisters in this world right now. Brothers in Christ. Sisters in Christ. Would find this especially encouraging. I, I read a statistic this week. Where it is estimated that 200 million Christians face persecution, discrimination, intimidation, and imprisonment every year. 200 million. In an article I read just this week about the Christians in Egypt, this was the headline. Torched churches and cries of death to Christians have become the norm in Egypt. By the Muslim Brotherhood. More than 80 churches. More than 80 Christian schools. And homes. And orphanages. Have been destroyed by fire. So Jesus' question here implies. That faith will not be found. Unless his disciples take heed. But why would we not take heed? In light of the broken things that we see. How do Christians persevere in a world that's under judgment, that has fallen? How do we not lose heart with the conditions that we see all around us? And even in your own individual lives. For some of you, work is very hard. Or perhaps you can't get a job. Maybe Sunday night, you are stressed and depressed because of having to go to a job you hate. On Monday and the injustices you see in the workplace. Or maybe your health is bad. 
Maybe you live with persistent pain. And this, more, this week I was reminded of that as I injured my back last week. And, and I've had persistent pain the entire week. And it makes me more sympathetic to those of you who, who have had persistent pain for decades. Or maybe your money is low and your, your finances are tight and you're, you're barely getting by. Or your house is lonely. You've lost a loved one. Or perhaps... <clears throat> You are missing a loved one who's moved away or about to move away. This is a word. How do you not lose heart when you are going through these difficult times? Jesus says, you live before the face of God. The Latin is quorum Deo, before the face of God. With doxological desperation. It's no secret. Indeed, This isn't one option of many. Jesus is saying this is the only option. And that's why he closes with this parable. Or closes with this question. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He seems to be saying that such faith will not be found unless the disciples take heed to this parable. That's a sober word, isn't it? Do you agree? Do you agree that's what he's saying? If you don't take heed to this parable, such faith will not be found when he returns. I think it's the only way to take it. But if you agree, will it impact your life? That's the telltale sign. If it doesn't impact your life, then essentially, you don't really believe what he's saying. And I believe what he's saying, the stakes are very high. And when he tells us to persist in prayer, he is telling us that we can trust that God will bring justice speedily. And in so doing, do you see how he's depicting God? He's depicting him as a judge. In fact, the whole parable depicts God as a judge by contrast. You have the unjust judge. You have the just judge who will bring justice. Who is unlike the unjust judge in that he is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his justice. And of course, we know the grandest, most glorious display of that justice was the cross, right? In Romans 3, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, whom God set forth as a propitiation at the present time to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, He had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate His righteousness, that He might be just, And the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Do you get that? God demonstrated his justice most supremely and clearly at the cross. In order for us to be justified, that is saved by God. He had to penalize our sin, judge our sin in the substitute. Jesus is the substitute. Jesus took the wrath of God For us who are not right with God so that we could be made right with God. 
That is the justice that God has brought to us. And if you are a believer, you can trust that if the judge of the earth does right by you, by making you right with him, you can trust that he's going to make the wrong things in your life right as well. Because he poured out his wrath on his son for those who are more like this unjust judge than we are his son who took the wrath. And that's why we can persist hopefully in prayer. If he can make you right, who was unright, by saving you, he can make the injustices in your life right as well. Doesn't that stir your heart? Doesn't that provoke you to prayer? To communion with him? Doesn't that cultivate love for the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the whole intent of this passage. You know, the Vindy Globe race, Alex Thompson persisted in that. Even though it's utterly irrelevant in the scheme of things. But the reason he persisted is because it's what he loves. It's what he worships. So it's what animates him. What do you love? What do you love? It's revealed by what you persist in. It's revealed by what you persevere in. Is it ball games? Is it television? Is it golf? Is it hunting? None of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But they can easily be idols that we worship. What do you persist in? Jesus is saying, if you are going to prevent losing heart, you must persist like this widow in prayer. And that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this text. It encourages us that when we pray, it matters. It matters. And this is a prayer, this is a parable for